Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Our message this morning is entitled, Jesus, King of Kings. Romans chapter 13. We're going to read it extra quickly and then begin. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Back to verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. What's wrong with this? Nothing. <laughs> but do you feel that something is wrong with this? If so, I posit and hope to persuade you that you may have misread Romans 13, 1 through 7. And it's easy to misread Romans 13. This is at least the third hardest passage in Romans, if not the second. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 were hard because we live in a culture where everybody is acceptable. But Romans 1 and 2 says... Everybody is under God's condemnation for our personal and national sin. And that's a hard one to swallow. But it's true. And it's also hard to take that because we have to hold it in tension with Romans 8. That nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we got through that one. Then there was Romans 9. Romans 9 was hard because, well, we concluded that... As God, Jesus Christ has the authority to judge and the right to have mercy. And that was a difficult one to resolve. Here we are at Romans 13. It's easy to misread Romans 13 in more than one way. So today we're going to read it carefully together and begin by asking God for wisdom to understand what it really says. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered in your name to worship you, and we ask that you would let your Holy Spirit fall on us to convict us of our own sin, to correct our misunderstandings, but especially to convict us of our sin, because as you know, we have the flesh, and it is hard to not be fleshly when we see injustice, and it's hard to not be fleshly under authority. 
and you are our authority, and all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. And so we ask that you would further convert and further draw uh, and further win our hearts today as you speak to us from this scripture, that we would know that you are the boss and that we would have peace within ourselves under governmental authorities. And we ask that you would help us to not make excuses for our wrongdoing or be blame shifters, which is so popular. And so all of this is for your glory, and we are your servants, no exceptions. Amen. So what seems to be the problem with this passage? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. The problem, what seems to be the problem, is that this letter was written, that Paul wrote to the Romans was written in about the mid to late 50s AD. Uh, the Emperor Nero was in power over Rome at that time. Just a few short years later, in AD 64, which you may know as the year 64 ACE, Nero blamed Christians for a fire that uh, broke out in Rome. Many people think he said it to clear out a neighborhood so that he could expand his uh, palatial grounds. Nero blamed the Christians for starting that fire. And after the fire, another fire broke out, the fire of persecution. And many Christians, even families, were tortured and killed. It wasn't pretty. At other times in the Roman Empire, such as during the reign of Diocletian in the third century, after the birth of Christ, Christianity was not just dangerous because you were getting persecuted and driven out of your home, Christianity was illegal. So, how do you submit to Christ and a governing authority when it's impossible to do both? Because sometimes it is. So let's not misread what this says. Let's raise some more questions first, though. What if somebody attacks you, somebody from the government attacks you, let's say it's wrongfully, can you defend yourself or should you submit to them? What about self-defense? Well, this says, don't resist, otherwise you'll incur judgment. Doesn't it? What about, um, what about getting back at, what, is it, what if you, you decide self-defense is okay in this context, and then you know, they've wronged me, and I'm gonna make it stop so they don't wrong the next person, and in fact, I'm gonna take vengeance and justice upon myself. I'm, I'm the Punisher. Have you seen the Punisher bumper stickers? It's this little like skull thing. It's from a comic character. Uh, the Punisher is this character who, um, he really gets at that fleshly thing in us that combines the godly desire for, for justice with that fleshly desire for vengeance. And he brings it all together and embodies it in himself. And he uses any means necessary to, to get back at the local villains, the mobsters, the whoever's in town. And he uses torture, kidnapping, murder, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, by any means necessary. These are the slogans we've seen uh, in the writings of Jean-Paul Sartre. These are the slogans we've seen in the teachings of uh, a civil rights leader, Malcolm X. Civil rights. What about the civil rights movement? What about Dr. King? 
how he resisted the governmental authorities. But doesn't Romans 13 say that was wrong? These are the questions we have to answer as we approach this text. And we have to answer them right. Otherwise, we're going to, Romans 13 will take us in the wrong direction instead of correct some wrong thinking in us, the reason for which it, for which it was written. What about Gandhi? Um, if you know anything about the British Empire uh, in the New World, or the British Empire in South Africa, and, uh, and the Boer Wars, if you know anything about the British Empire in India, um, although the British did a lot of good things, um, they also were, at times, oppressors, and sometimes pretty nasty oppressors. What about Gandhi? Gandhi resisted them. Right or wrong? Does Romans 13 forbid Gandhi's work, the liberation of India from the British? What about the American War for Independence? The American, the, the founding fathers weren't Gandhis, they weren't Dr. Kings, they went to war. They took up arms, they got guns, they got bayonets and such, they got ships with cannons, and they blasted them. And they said, get out, we won't take this anymore. Doesn't that sound like resisting the governmental authorities to you? I've tipped my hand because I called it the War for Independence and not the Revolutionary War, which betrays something of my, my moral judgment on that, that conflict. Hmm. Is there ever a time to fight tyranny? Is there ever, Christian, a time to fight evil? Oh, yes, there is. What about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He went back to Germany, and he didn't just go back as the pastor and theologian that he was into Nazi Germany. He went back and was ultimately, uh, his life was taken because he was, it was uncovered that he was a part of the assassination plot against Hitler. Right or wrong? What does your heart tell you? What does Romans 13 tell you? These are the questions before us. What about taxes? Romans 13 says pay taxes. Does it say pay taxes? I think it said pay taxes. What if your government said, your taxes are now 90% of your income? Can we take that? It's so heavy, it's such a heavy burden. So is that the grounds by which we rise up or resist peacefully or by any means necessary? What is God telling us here? Is there a limit? What if taxes are 10%? Or 3% like they ought to be. <laughs> I see that hand. Does it matter what taxes are spent on? This passage clearly teaches that there is a place for taxes somewhere. What's the number? This doesn't say. But there is a place for taxes to do something. And that something about government is legitimate and way more than legitimate, but established by God for our good and for the restraint of evil. And so that we don't take vengeance, they do. God gave them the sword, but God didn't give us vigilante justice. Did he? Doesn't seem so. Doesn't seem so, does it? But where's the limit to that when government doesn't do its job? These are the questions before us. And they're not necessarily easy questions because we're getting into murky waters and we're getting into a lot of mixture here. Back to taxes. Does it matter what the taxes are spent on? This says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. It's not very specific. So now your government collects taxes 
and they spend it to teach that, uh, that your children who are attending their schools were not created by God, they were created by whatever, and, uh, and it came about through you know, primordial soup and such things. And, uh, and then anybody can be any uh, gender they want to be, and anybody can do anything sexually they want to, and, and we have to accept them, otherwise we're in the wrong. And that the Bible is just a bunch of hogwash. And that and, and then the taxes start getting spent on funding uh, infanticide. You know? Can I still pay those taxes? Or am I complicit in an evil government's evil schemes? Who decides? These are questions before us. What about speed limits? Are speed limits for me? I need to get to church, so I'm going to go 55 in the 35. Can I get an amen? Stop it. <laughs> Speed limits are for you. <laughs> are they? Yes. Government, law, oppression, wars for independence, the right of the people to self-govern, different forms of government like tyranny, democracy, Constitutional governments. Hmm. Christ. And the heart of this passage. The heart of this passage is Christ. To understand this passage, we can't cut it out from the rest of the book of Romans and read it in isolation. We have to go back at least a few verses or we'll almost certainly misunderstand Romans 13. Let's begin in chapter 12, verse 17, if we could get it up on the board. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's like everywhere and at all times, and when nobody is watching, God sees. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We talked about that last week. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. All authority comes from God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Although we're going to see there are many exceptions to that. Are there not? Have you ever heard of persecution of Christians? It happens in nearly every land and nearly every age. This is not an absolute statement, is it? It's not a statement that stands alone apart from the rest of the scripture. This is one word of God. And that's going to be a key for us to interpret this properly. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. What about today? 
when Christians try to, Christian families try to do what is good and teach their children to know the Lord, and they teach their children uh, all of his ways and his commandments, and the government steps in and says, you can't do that. So that sounds like an exception to this. Are you okay with that? You can be. This is not an absolute statement that stands alone. However, as it should be, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Do you think the Christians in Rome were happy when they got this in the mail from Paul? Yes. I don't think so. This is a tough one to swallow. They live in Rome, man. Things aren't good for Jews. Things aren't good for Christians. Everybody's getting kicked out, driven out, property confiscated, persecuted, rounded up, killed. This is Rome. Paul doesn't know anything about Rome. No, Paul's a Roman citizen. He was born in the empire. He's a smart man. He is a sharp cookie, well-educated, great learning he had. He knew all about Rome. He knew the culture of Rome, its violence, its slavery, its oppression, its bribes, its, its immorality. It was a tough, tough culture to live in. It was a tough government under which to live. Paul knew all about it. And he said, he said all these things. And this was hard for the Roman Christians to swallow. I don't think they liked getting this letter. I don't think they liked it when they got to Romans 13 and it was read in church one day. But I think Caesar liked it when he found out about it, don't you? If you were the ruler of an empire and your Christian dissidents started writing letters to each other that said, submit to the governing authority, wouldn't you like that? I'll tell you, Caesar disliked getting this even more than the Christians. And here's why. Because Caesar, you know, Caesar is Lord. You had to maybe burn incense to him. That's, that's worshiping him. Caesar worship was required, and especially if you were in the army. You couldn't even be in the Roman army and not worship Caesar. Otherwise, you got executed or whatever, right? So if Caesar read this, he would have been incensed. He would have been enraged because this says... Caesar is God's servant. Ooh, that would have hit his pride, his self-deification. I don't think anybody liked getting this in the mail. But if you do wrong, Christians, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is for making little cuts, a little wound, a little mark. Maybe you turn it sideways and you get a slap. The sword is for killing. This is talking about capital punishment. Ouch. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Back to chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Overcome evil, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Then back to 13, the governing authority 
is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has done something here in societies where he himself has installed, raised up, and ordained, set in place temporarily until it's time for him to judge them, governing authorities who are, when they're rightly exercising their service to God that God requires of them, they avenge, they carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, and they avenge blood. People don't get away with murder. This is one of God's ways to bring about the overcoming evil with good in society. Civil government restrains anarchy, and there's nothing good about anarchy. If you've ever watched, if you've ever heard of something called Anarchy 99, it's, it's not good. If you ever watched Triple X or something, it's, there's, nothing, there's nothing attractive about that, right? There's nothing good about anarchy. It's the opposite of submission to God. Romans 13 is teaching us that here is Christ, and in him is invested all authority in heaven and on earth. And all of the lords and kings and the guys who call themselves the king of the universe, like our old buddy Nebuchadnezzar, and guys who call themselves lord of lords, like old Caesar, you know, all of them, they're underlings. They're, they're ministers. They're servants. Minister means servant. God put them there to do several specific jobs, and that they are to do. And when they do not, when they overstep their boundaries, as they almost always do, God has appointed a time that they will be judged. And we'll see that when we get to the book of Daniel in a moment. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then, um, um, just a second. So the context is never repay anyone evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's this theme here. Flow with it. Romans 13 is just part of that flow. Uh, Romans 13 verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's part of this context. Verse 14 says, um, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When you live in an ungodly place, an ungodly household, an ungodly nation, under an ungodly government, what is your gut reaction? What does your flesh want to do? Get even, rebel, and demand your rights. And this chapter, which says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, is telling us not to be fleshly, but rather how to be image bearers of God and kingdom builders while we are living as aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Are you first American? Are you first Indian? Are you first Singaporean? Did I say that right? Your citizenship is in heaven. You have dual citizenship, but kind of sort of, but really your citizenship is in heaven. These are, this is a foreign land. There has to be a limit on our patriotism. 
patriotism is not ultimate, nor is it necessarily bad. In the Jewish scriptures, we read in Exodus 21, 23, and 24, that if one person harms another person, justice would require that if one person uh, causes that harm, then that person shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is God's image, his teaching of what justice looks like in the Jewish scriptures. Jesus did not come to abolish this law. He came to fulfill it. When Jesus came, as the perfect embodiment of both the infinite justice and the infinite mercy of God, by making justice for us, taking upon himself our every sin, satisfying the wrath of God in himself, and granting us mercy instead. He made something possible that didn't seem possible before to some. In doing this, he brought us to himself. In doing this, he did not abolish the law in Exodus, but fulfilled it. Therefore, his commandment to us is never avenge ourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I take great comfort in that verse, I will repay. Because every time I see injustice, every time I see overwhelming or ongoing injustice, something in me cries out against it like the psalmist often did. And I take great comfort in, I will repay. Because I know he won't overdo it and he won't underdo it. God's justice is infinite and perfect. I'm just glad I escaped his judgment and his vengeance. By doing good and loving even our enemies and praying for our ungodly rulers, we bring gospel redemption to our land. Okay. Back to verse 1. Submit to the governing authorities. Can you always do that? Can you always do that? Sometimes one cannot directly submit to the governing authorities and also submit to Christ. So verse 1 is not saying to do whatever the governing authorities tell you to do. Is it? Can everybody agree with that? When the governing authority forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids, you cannot do it. There's no excuse for that. Romans 13.1 doesn't give you permission to submit to that. The opposite is true. Romans 13 is the beginning of a description of how to live as Christians in a non-Christian environment. So, what does this chapter say and what does it not say? Here are about three possibilities. Number one, this passage means that we are to submit to the governing authorities by doing what they say without resistance. Any takers? Number two, this passage means that we are to be subject to the governing authorities in specific areas and to the specific extent that God sets. Do you like that one? Number three, 
This passage means that the governing authorities should be obeyed and honored if and when they are willingly submitted to God. Like that one? Got a few hands. There's something about that that's kind of true. But number two is better. This passage means that we are to be subject to the governing authorities who may or may not be willingly submitted to God. And in fact, if you know anything about history, they overwhelmingly are not. Yet, I still have freedom to submit myself, perhaps even lay down my life for my rights for the sake of Christ and the gospel. I am to submit, be subject to the governing authorities in specific areas and to the specific extent that God sets. So what are those? We'll get there. So the goal for us is not, when we're trying to decide how to submit, when to submit, if we submit, the goal here is not the governing authority. Here's why I don't buy number three. The governing authority did something wrong. They committed injustice. Therefore, who's going to take justice in his own hands? Ehud will. You know the story of Ehud? If you like it, maybe you'll think, I'll take that into my own hands. Hmm. Eh. Hmm. Uh, is God calling you to do that? This calls for great wisdom. The goal here is not for us as Christians to, to enforce or to require justice at any cost. Justice is right, but we don't uh, but our ultimate goal is not justice at any cost, nor is it fairness at any cost. It's also not me demanding to be given my rights at any cost. Justice isn't the absolute law that determines our actions. Christ is. We're not under law. We're under Christ. Do I have rights? Of course I do. Inalienable rights? Yes. But as a servant of Christ, I have the right, even the obligation, to lay down my rights for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of you. I have the right to lay down my rights for your sake. I was sitting with John Luke in a coffee shop yesterday, and he told me about the time he was in a maybe heated argument with uh, Sydney. And Sidney stopped him in the middle of the argument, and he said, I'm not trying to win the argument. I'm trying to win you. I have a feeling Sidney was right. But what was in Sidney's heart is the same thing that Paul, that Christ, that the Spirit is trying to help us through this passage to have in our heart. I'm not trying to win the argument. I'm trying to win you. And thus, we have the option, the opportunity, even the obligation at times to lay down our rights for your sake, for each other's sake, like Sam did, or like, like Sid did. The spirit of Matthew 18, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and, go and get some help. If he doesn't listen to them, go and get some more help. If he doesn't listen to them, tell the whole church, right? Right? Wrong. <laughs> the spirit of Matthew 18 is not forcing the person who offends you to admit that you were right and they were wrong. And if you've ever been married for like more than an hour, you know that didn't work the first time and it probably won't ever work again. The spirit of Matthew 18 is not proving that you're right 
or, or getting the last word in. It's winning, your brother and sister. And therefore, the way of the cross, the way of Christ, is laying down my rights, even my life, for your sake, as Christ did for you. We lay down our lives also for the sake of the gospel. We lay down our rights. Paul was a Roman citizen. He had civil rights. Maybe not everybody in Rome had civil rights, but he was a citizen, right? That's a little bit of injustice there. He could have exercised his rights. He could have used his rights. Or he could have never resisted the governing authorities, like he tells us to do here in Romans 13. But I ask you then, why, if he never resisted the governing authorities, he who wrote down Romans 13, why did he so often find himself landed in prison? <laughs> the no resistance thing, the be subject thing, isn't an absolute statement that trumps all other statements. It fits into a context. And Paul often laid down his rights. He was stoned to death. He was shipwrecked, etc. He, he was in tremendous risk and danger. It's like as often as not, for the sake of the gospel. So I can lay down my rights and whatever else I need to lay down that I deserve for the sake of the gospel because the gospel comes before being subject to civil government in a way that, uh, that they tell me what rights I have and don't have. Or in my God-given right to life or liberty or whatever you accept as your God-given right. Right? I lay down my rights for the sake of Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live uh, through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said, I am not my own, I was bought with a price. This is the spirit of uh, the context of Romans 13. Paul said, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He didn't hold his self-identity or his right to, to kind of be his own person and, and have the right image or dress a certain way or even act uh, the way he liked to act, to be free to act. He limited himself and he said, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. The heart of Romans 13 is Subjection to Christ and love for one another. And how to be an image bearer of God in an ungodly place. Love, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If there is a time during your life for some kind of uprising against the governing authority, which I'm going to argue uh, there sometimes is, because God brings kingdoms to an end when he says the cup of their iniquity is full. And sometimes he uses an Ehud. Sometimes he uses a Jehu to go and do it and to be his agent of wrath against the evildoer, the civil government, right? And I think both of those guys were Christians. I think both of them were God-fearers doing God's will. But that's not necessarily me. It's not necessarily right now. 
So when my civil government is evil to me, the context of this is, do not repay anyone evil for evil. This informs how we do political action. This informs how we use freedom of speech. This informs the way we criticize the government. Love your enemies, pray for kings and all those who are in authority. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It says, if possible, because it's not always possible, because truth does not just bring people together, it also divides people. Mark 9, verse 50 says, Jesus said, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. My Reformation Study Bible note says that the image of salt describes true discipleship. That is, a citizen of a kingdom of heaven bearing God's image and doing good in the context of an ungodly kingdom in which she or he lives. So, a true disciple doing what is good. Salt is a preservative. Jesus is telling his disciples to use humility and service to preserve the peace of the church rather than dividing it through a desire to become great. Speaking of a desire to become great, now let us turn in the pages of our mind back to the book of Daniel to my second favorite Old Testament Bible character, King Nebuchadnezzar. First is David. We'll get there. The book of Jeremiah paints Nebuchadnezzar as a cruel enemy of Judah, of the Jews, but also as God's appointed ruler of the world and a divine instrument to punish disobedience. Is there a time for resistance? Is there a way to resist? Does that look different at different times and different seasons? Yes. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar. He was brutal. He was violent. He was an oppressor. He went to a foreign land, the land of Judah, and he, he took him out. He cleaned the, the temple, and he just cleared things out. After the siege, he carried people away uh, in chains, the people who were left, who he didn't kill, exiles to Babylon. It was God's will that the people of Judah, that rebellious house, should be carried away to Babylon. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and used him as his servant. Did Nebuchadnezzar overstep his boundaries? Of course, yes. Was God going to judge him in due time? God did repay Nebuchadnezzar. Except, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar seems to have had a change of heart. If you remember our Daniel study, I think he had two big changes of heart. I think Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian. I'm hopeful. What was the fruit of Daniel, who is our, our first of three examples, what is the fruit of Daniel's example of how to do what is good while he is under a pretty terrible uh, governing authority? What was the fruit of that? I think Daniel, I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, uh, I think they witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar. 
and Nebuchadnezzar saw the glory of God. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ standing in the fiery furnace. We wouldn't have had that if, if these men hadn't chosen to do what is good under oppression. The governing authority told them, bow down and worship my golden image, my gigantic golden image out here. And of course they resisted that. Of course they didn't subject themselves to, to men rather than God. We must obey God rather than men, said the disciples when pressured. But the fruit of their obedience is that we have the book of Daniel as encouragement, giving us hope when we're under evil kings. Um, the kingdom of Babylon was eventually trampled like a, like a wild beast that was out of control. It was slaughtered and its body was given over to the fire to be burned. Daniel chapter seven, Daniel is shown a vision of the kingdoms of uh, Babylon, uh, the Persians or Medo-Persians, um, the, the Greeks and the Romans, the context of this letter. And he says that all of these, their power was taken away. God trampled them. God brought them to judgment. In that vision, what is streaming forth from the throne of God? Is it a river of life, a river of water? It's a river of fire. Judgment is coming out from the presence of God to destroy those evildoers who did not repent. I think, I hope, Nebuchadnezzar was shown mercy and escaped that judgment. What about Daniel under Belshazzar? Remember Belshazzar? Belshazzar was a... I can't think of any words that aren't socially inappropriate. Um, because those words are designed for people like him. Belshazzar was a, was a little man. He was proud and he wasn't, he wasn't great like his father or forefather Nebuchadnezzar as Daniel used some... Uh, resistant freedom of speech to point out in public. He didn't give him uh, too much honor. He didn't give him more honor than was due him, but he still gave him some honor. And when Belshazzar demanded that, you know, offered him a gold chain and a purple king's robe to interpret the handwriting on the wall, the, the proclamation of judgment against Belshazzar that his kingdom went in that very night, what did Daniel say? What did Daniel say to the ruler that Romans 13 says we're supposed to honor and respect? and so on, and be subject to. Daniel said, keep your, keep your reward, rewards. Nevertheless, I'll read it, right? He didn't flip him off. He didn't go post on his blog, you know, <laughs> if I found out that any of you voted for this guy, I'm unfriending you, <laughs> or whatever. Pay to all whom honor is owed, to whom respect is owed respect, right? He did that. There's some room for some freedom of speech there. Um, what about under uh, King Darius or Darius, Darius the Mede? Daniel was a subject under that civil government too. And when he was instructed to stop praying and to pray only to the king, right? Obviously he didn't do that. Um, and so he prayed three times a day. He left his windows open. He wanted. He wanted to make sure that he was a gospel witness in an ungodly place. And therefore, in that way, he resisted or wasn't subject to the government authorities. Was he right or wrong to do so? Did he disobey Romans 13? No. Rather, he obeyed it. 
because he was subject to Christ. Because Romans 13, as we have seen, is more about the governing authorities are subjects of Christ, and we therefore are serving Christ by being subject in certain ways with limits to them, right? The main point of this passage is that Caesar is not the Lord, Christ is the Lord. Another word for Lord is a sovereign. This passage does not teach the authority of the state or the authority of the governing authorities. This teaches that there is no authority anywhere in any man because of worthiness, pedigree, qualifications, power, office, uh, taken, conferred, or seized, or crown laid upon his or her head. There's no human authority in us at all or in anybody. All authority is from him. There is no authority except from God. That's a metaphysical principle there in verse 1. This passage teaches the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He owns all that he has created. And all things were created by him and for him, Colossians 1.16. Not only that, but he is close. He is actually not far from each one of us, Acts 17.27. He is involved in our lives and in our government. Does he use the government to restrain evil? Yes. Does he always immediately prevent the government themselves from committing evil? No. Will he bring them into judgment? Yes. Contrary to what most governors want you to believe, their authority doesn't come from their office, crown, or qualifications. Their authority is an extension of Christ's authority. And Christ uses their service for our good. The local, state, national, or imperial governors do not have any authority of their own because authority does not come from what humans establish or seize. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He invites us to be loved by him unconditionally and to love him because he first loved us. He calls us to know his ways and commands, and he instructs us to disciple people of all nations to know him, love him, and keep his commandments. This is the prime directive. This is your mission, to glorify God by discipling people from all nations to know him and to do all that he has commanded. That is the reason for which you were created, the reason for which you were brought into the world by King Jesus. This is our mission assignment. How do we go about this mission assignment when we are residents of non-Christian societies and under non-Christian governors? We recognize that governing authorities have limited authority over us. They serve God by using the sword to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. They are to approve what is good. This is the proper role of government. They are to help promote order. Our governments get charged by God with the responsibility or duty or right to keep order. Governments help promote order. There's a big limit on that. Governments restrain evil. They carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, because civil government is for the good of society, according to God's purposes, 
God gives the government the lawful use of force to administer just laws. Um, we didn't finish talking about Daniel. The fruit of Daniel's uh, obedience to God, in his context, he decided not to close his doors and hide his gospel witness. In his context, under the leading and wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the principles of the scriptures, he did not gather up an army and assassinate uh, King Darius and say, these laws are bad. You can't oppress Christians by telling them have to, how to pray to you. He had the wisdom of God in him. And in his case, he chose martyrdom, or rather to pray that God would shut the mouths of the lions. The fruit of that choice, the fruit of his pursuing peace and laying down his life when his rights, he gave up his rights. In our country, we call that an inalienable right, right, the right to life. And, and he gave it up, and the fruit of that was that this king was probably another convert to the gospel, I hope. And it had tremendous fruit, and the people of God, when the time of their exile was done, they got to go home, largely because of Daniel. I think we have to skip um, uh, Joseph in Egypt and, and his doing good when evil was done to him. But we must take time for David. Who was David? David was a man oppressed. David was a man disadvantaged. David was a man persecuted and chased. Who persecuted and chased him? The civil governing authority. Who established, who installed, directly picked Saul as the king of Israel? God did. Nobody voted for him. Nobody cheated when they cast their lots. God determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live and who should be in charge of that nation. Why did he do it? Partly because they deserved to have an evil king and because it led them to gospel repentance in the next generation. By the end of Saul's reign, Saul's oppressive and sometimes brutal reign over Israel, uh, you know he commanded that an entire village of priests should be killed because one of them had unknowingly let David escape. He didn't even know Saul was chasing the guy. And so he ordered that they all be killed. Saul was kind of a brutal man. He, he didn't care about the Lord's glory or honor. He cared about being honored in front of the people. He didn't care about leading the people in sacrifice to God. He wasn't out building a temple, a house for his name. He was out building a monument for himself. He was self-absorbed, and he did whatever it takes to get what he wanted. We can't do that politically to bring about justice and change. There's a limit on what we can do. We can use godly means to bring about justice and change. And we have to use godly means. We have a duty to do so. Romans 13 isn't an excuse for inaction or inactivity. Romans 13 isn't an excuse to not vote, to not be involved politically, or to be separatists from the world to the degree that we don't participate in civil government. The f David's heart was the opposite of Saul. And by the time the nation had endured the reign of Saul, they were ready for the reign of a David, a man after God's own heart. The fruit of David's 
uh, David's heart in his statements like, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, was that we have most of the Psalms. Like half the Psalms were written by David. And they were written largely when he was running for his life from the civil government. Did he hang around and submit? When Saul's like, stay here, I, I need time to kill you. He ran. He didn't submit to that. And yet, what about the Christian martyrs in the first century and beyond? Did they sin by not running away? Did they sin by taking a stand for Christ publicly? They had wisdom from the Holy Spirit of when to, when to flee, like, like Jesus' parents fled the governing authorities, right? They broke the law. They had wisdom from the Spirit to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of preserving the purposes of God in our generation, and others, like Ehud and Jehu. If you know Jehu, he's a tough character. He chased down the, the entire government and killed them. And it's, it's, it's picturesque, it's poignant. Jehu was called by God to be God's hand of judgment against the governing authorities. Is that possible, that you could be called to be God's hand of vengeance? Are you supposed to assassinate the evil ruler? Joseph didn't think so. David didn't think so. Daniel didn't think so. And these were men after God's own heart, foreshadowers of Christ, who laid down his life that he might win some. Right? Did God call Jehu and Ehud? I believe so. The civil government has roles established by God. It is not responsible for, nor does it have authority over the things outside what God has given it. The Bible, I mean the state, or the government, is not to operate in the areas of the family, school, or church, if the Bible makes no provision for the civil government's power or authority in these areas. In other words, if the Bible does not make provision for the civil government to interfere in the affairs of the family, the school, or the church, they shouldn't. But they do that all the time. What then do Christians do? We use every godly means to protest, to work against. There could be a time to fight. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. But the context of this passage is overwhelmingly peace. And Jesus said, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. The statement, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, is not an exclusive statement, because all human power is delegated and ministerial. No one government can claim its area of government authority as ultimate. Neither can any one governmental authority validate or invalidate another governmental authority, like the, like the authority of the family. There's government there, or the authority of the school to teach children the ways of God and to know the Lord. That's a father's responsibility. That's a family's responsibility that we have, are allowed to, to work through schools to do. It's not the job of the government to raise my children in the knowledge of instruction of the Lord. Fathers, it's your job. If there's no father in your family, mothers, that falls on you. It's your job. 
Fathers, if you're trying to prevent that from happening in your home, mothers, it's not your job to submit to that. It's your job to make sure your children receive a Christian education. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Self-government. What if the government says, if you won't work, you're starving, and I can't let you starve because that's not compassionate. So I'll tax you and give the money to you so that you don't starve. Right or wrong? Compassionate. There's a little bit of right there, but ultimately, it's a disobedience to the principle of the scriptures. If a man shall not work, he shall not eat. It's wrong. How do we pay taxes to a government that does that? That question I'm not going to answer today. But it is a question, isn't it? And the founding fathers of this country, uh, the resistance leaders in India, they had things to say about that. And some of what was done in, un, in working against injustice and working for the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel was done with righteous motives and by righteous means, and some wasn't. Being subjects of the kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, involves being subject to governing authorities, but not where there is a conflict. When earthly laws conflict with God's laws, who do you think wins? God wins, every time. We are obligated to disobey earthly laws that would require us to disobey Christ. This means that we cannot be cowards when it is time to resist evil. We we cannot use Romans 13 as an excuse not to act. We work for justice, and we work for, to build the kingdom of God on earth by doing the good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. This calls for courage and sacrifice and integrity, because it's hard not to be fleshly when your rulers are doing injustice to you. Sometimes uh, we are called to peace wherever possible, but sometimes peace is not possible. Wherever it is possible, we have this word from the Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Not just citizens of God's kingdom, but children of God, who have ownership and delegated authority, delegated leadership in the kingdom of God. That's every one of you. We can't make excuses for our ungodly actions when we're oppressed, pressured and persecuted. This is a call to holiness, to act as agents of God to protect the rights of the oppressed. And it is a call to patience when suffering unjustly. Amen.